Is it the Lord's will for Christian wives to submit to their husbands? Welcome to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., author and pastor teacher at Shiloh Church in Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida. Ephesians 5:22-24, Paul explains the biblical role of Christian wives in three relationships. Her relationship with her husband, with Jesus Christ, and her relationship to the church. Today, Pastor Charles will give us the biblical role of Christian wives. And now, here's Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. This morning, I want to begin a brief series of messages that I want to call Honoring Christ at Home and at Work. Fundamentally, what I'm doing over these weeks is just working through the next section of Ephesians particularly chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 9, where there is what scholars call household codes, instructions the writer gives to explain how Christians should conduct themselves in relationship to one another in family and at work. We'll work our way, God willing, through each section where there is another group addressed, and I want to begin verse 22 through 24. My daughter Natalie asked me last night what I was preaching today. And I told her, and she said, on Valentine's Day, why in the world would you do that? And my best answer was, this is where the text starts. And so this is where we will begin. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. I want to label the message today, the biblical role of Christian wives, the biblical role of Christian wives. In his commentary on Ephesians, the late James Montgomery Boyce called his chapter on this passage, Loving Husbands, Happy Wives. He he then begins, he then begins, we got a long way to go, y'all. Stay with me, just stay with me, stay with me. He then begins the chapter by confessing that he is somewhat embarrassed by the title, acknowledging that there are very few people in our day and time that view marriage relationships that way. There are many people who cannot count on one hand the genuinely loving and happy married couples they know even in the church. And we have become so cynical about marriage that when you meet a a couple that seems to be happy, we're prone to say, who do they think they're fooling? 
others or themselves. As a result, we live in what may be the first generation ever where children and young people grow up without aspiring toward marriage, family, and the home because they have not seen healthy marriages, happy homes. They reject the whole notion of the traditional family, thinking that it is really just more trouble than it's worth. Why is it that there seems to be so few loving husbands and happy wives? In a word, the answer is sin. More specifically, original sin. Adam and Eve, the first married couple, were created in innocence but fell into sin. Eve was deceived by the serpent and disobeyed God. Adam, her husband, followed her in intentional rebellion against God's command. And as a result of one man's sin, sin entered the whole world. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, the Lord says to the woman Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 introduces the battle of the sexes. I submit to you that both women liberation and male chauvinism are rooted in sin. And because of this ongoing sinful reality, the family and the home are under a sense of attack and demise and crisis in the time and culture that we now live in. I submit to you that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can save the home. Biblical Christianity restores the order of the home not eradicates it. Yet because of remaining sin, salvation alone is not even enough to fix the family. We can only, by dependence upon the enabling help of the Holy Spirit, only then can we live in obedience to the word of God at home and at work. This is where we must start When we study a text like this, before we get to the specifics of what Paul says here to wives and husbands, there is a larger exhortation to the body as a whole. Look at verses 18 through 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In that paragraph, Paul 
explains that the evidence of a spirit-filled life is seen in how a believer relates to God and one another. Verse 21 is a transition into the next section of the letter, chapter 5, verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul will explain how spirit-filled Christians honor Christ at work and at home, particularly in three relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, literally masters and servants for our purposes, employers and employees. This section begins in verses 22 through 24, where Paul directly addresses Christian wives. And he here lays before us the biblical role of Christian wives, and it is this. It is the Lord's will for Christian wives to submit to their husbands. That's the message of the text. It is the Lord's will for Christian wives to submit to their husbands. And Paul will make this point in these three verses by describing the wife's relationships in three categories. Let me overview first. Verse 22 is the wife's relationship to her husband. Verse 23 is the wife's relationship to Jesus Christ. Verse 24 is the wife's relationship to the church. Now, let me back up and walk you through that in the text. First, Paul addresses the wife's relationship to her husband, the wife's relationship to her husband. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Paul will address specific groups here, wives, husbands, fathers, children, servant, masters. But here he begins with wives, and this is an unqualified term. He is speaking to every woman who is a Christian, who is a wife. No qualification here. This is for young and old, new believers, seasoned saints. It is a a message irregardless of one's age, maturity, intellect, accomplishments, possessions, any of those things. If you are a Christian who is a woman, who is a wife, Paul, on the behalf of God, addresses you here. And what he says to wives is specifically about how wives are to relate to their husbands. And again, there is no qualifying term. This is not how a wife should treat a good husband. Just your own husband. Let me add something here that is important for me to say. This is my burden for all of this passage for us as a church. That's why I forced my way back to finish Ephesians. Because as I wrestle with some things theologically, this is, this is important for me to understand in Christian formation of thought and life. That what Paul will say here to wives, husbands, parents, children, employees, and employers is a part of a letter that was to be read and expounded before the entire church in a setting like this. What he says here to wives is not something discussed in a women's ministry meeting or in a married women's Sunday school class. The entire church apparently needed to hear what 
He says to Christian wives, this is relevant because some of you may sit here thinking, I showed up on the wrong Sunday. (laughs) Pass is talking to wives today. I'm not a wife. I've never been a wife, not going to be a wife. This has nothing to do with me. But for you to think that way under the word of God shows a grade error. It is a self-centered approach to scripture that uses it as an encyclopedia where you just get out what you think is for you rather than a love letter that is to be taken in in its entirety. You don't get to pick what's relevant for you. All scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and instruction in righteousness. In Acts 20, verses 26 and 27, Paul says that you should know the whole counsel of God, not just the part that fits your demographic. You need to know the mind of God as it relates to everything that he says for the building up of your own faith. And you need to know this today because God may bring into your life a Christian wife who you will need to counsel, pray for, and encourage. And you need this message so that you won't be telling them what Oprah and Dr. Phil says. But you can tell them what the word of God says. And so Paul here, before the whole church addresses wives, and I'm going to say that again when he gets to husbands and when he gets to children. The children were not away in children's church. They heard this in the entire assembly. And here... He addresses the wives and discusses what the wife's role in the home is. What is the wife's role in the home? Some take offense to this because they think it contradicts Galatians 3.28, where Paul says, In Christ there is no male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond or free, but we are one in Christ. And they don't know how Ephesians 5.22 can match with Galatians 3.28. But be careful how you interpret so that you don't make the, the error of mixed modality. Every text speaks in its own context. In Galatians 3.28, Paul is talking about salvation, about our standing in Christ. He is talking about how to get right with God. And what he is saying is that in Christ, in the salvation process, there is no male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond or free. It, it means You don't get closer to salvation because you're born a Jew or born a man or born free rather than a slave. He is saying, listen to this church, at the cross, all of the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You don't have an advantage based upon race or gender or status. The call of grace is extended equally to all who would hear and heed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when it refers to our standing in Christ, we are one in him, whether male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. That Galatians 3.28 is about our standing in Christ. But here in Ephesians 5, he is not talking about salvation. He's talking about the home. And even though... We have the same standing in Christ. God has set up different roles in the home and in the church. 
And he discusses the wife's role here, emphasizing, listen, in all of these relationships, the emphasis is on your Christian duty before God. This is not about your rights. It's about your responsibility. This extended passage is not about a fulfilled marriage. It's about a faithful marriage. It's about you lining up where God has ordained for you to line up. And he says to the wives here that the wives are to submit to their own husbands as unto the Lord. Verse 21 calls for mutual submission. We are all to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now going forward, he will tell us what that looks like in different relationships. And verse 22 says specifically that wives are to submit to their own husbands. The word submit means to place under, to arrange under, to set under. It's a military term that describes soldiers lining up under the authority of a commanding officer. It is basically to follow leadership. The argument of the text is that God has established that the husband is to give loving leadership of the home and the wife is to willingly submit to his loving leadership. She is to relinquish certain rights that are hers in order to line up where the commanding officer has placed her. What does this look like? What does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? Let me give you four dynamics of this call to submission. First, would you consider with me that submission is God-ordained? Some, and when I speak of some, I'm not talking about people in the world. I'm talking about Christians, even Christian leaders and teachers and scholars try to diminish what Paul says here by, by attacking Paul. And saying Paul said this because Paul was narrow-minded or Paul was chauvinistic or Paul hated women or Paul was culturally conditioned. But you must be careful to talk like that and dismiss the scripture on that kind of logic. Because to attack what Paul says here is to attack, listen, the word of God. This is not about your view of gender roles when you go that route. This is about your view of scripture. And we believe that Paul and David... And Jeremiah and Moses didn't write based upon their own opinion. They wrote under the superintendence of God, the Holy Spirit, to make sure that what they wrote exactly lined up with the will and wisdom of Almighty God. Using the pen and mind of Paul, God speaks here to give instructions for how Christian wives are to conduct themselves in the home. And he says, God says, not merely Paul, believing this to be the word of God, God says, and be careful because if you get to pick which part is the word and which ain't the word, you in big trouble. God's word here says that the wife is to submit, but that doesn't mean that she submits because she is in any way inferior to her husband. They are equal in person in creation, man and female. Genesis 1, 26, 27 says God created them male and female. 
First Peter 3 and 7 says that the husband and wife share together in the graces of life. As I mentioned, Galatians 3.28 says that the male and female are one in Christ. There's no suggestion that the wife should submit because she is somehow inferior to the man or to her husband. Fact of the matter is she may be smarter than he is or wiser than he is. Or more mature than he is. But what God has called for here is an ordered equality. The wife is not inferior to her husband, but God is a God of order. And in his sovereign wisdom, God has established the order of the home so that the husband is to give loving leadership And the wife is to willingly submit. We don't like this. It sounds tough and rough, but let me, when I'm making an argument for this ordered equality, I don't start, listen, I don't start with marriage. I start with the Trinity. God is one in essence, three in person. He is one being. There is only one God. But in the mystery of this infinite God, Scripture teaches that this one being is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's not the Father became the Son and the Son manifest the Spirit. These are three coexistent, co-eternal, co-equal persons. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as the Son, and the Son is just as much God as the Father, and all three have been God forever. That's why those that were baptized were baptized in the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But just read the gospel. And listen to Jesus talk. Jesus says, I don't speak on my own accord. I only say what the Father tells me to say. I don't come to do my will. I come to do the will of my Father. I don't come to glorify myself. I came to glorify my Father. They are equal, and yet the Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Son and to the Father. Listen, friends, if Jesus can be submissive, why can't you? Submission is God-ordained. Secondly, it is voluntary. Submission is voluntary. Husband, it is not our jobs to make our wives submit. You don't force submission or coerce submission or manipulate submission. You know, don't, you know, don't, don't, don't. Don't get comfortable, brothers, as we work through these three verses, because after these three verses about wives, there's nine verses about us in the next part of the text. It calls on us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. She does not submit because she is forced to submit. She is not to submit because she is punished for not submitting. She is to submit voluntarily. It's the middle voice. You must submit yourself willingly, voluntarily. Let me throw another word in there, joyfully. 
Wives are to submit themselves to their husbands. And that might seem to be limiting and restricting and narrow. But to feel that way, church, only says you don't understand how much power a woman really has. There is power in submission. Stick a pen in chapter 5 of Ephesians and go right to 1 Peter. The end of the New Testament there is 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation, and you're at the end of the book. In 1st Peter chapter 3, there is another set of these household codes where the writer explains how Christians ought to conduct themselves at home and at work. And I want you to note the first verses of chapter 3 of 1 Peter when he discusses how the wife should respond to her husband. He, she, he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. But watch the next phrase, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. So that even if some do not obey the word, Listen, he says, your duty is to submit not just if the husband does what he's supposed to do. I know we're tempted to think that way. We always are. I am. This is why I try to meditate on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where it says, we all must individually appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And when we answer to God for how we have lived our lives, we won't get to tell on anybody else. You could tell, try to tell the Lord what, the, what other people did not do or what other people did, and it will not matter. He will only say, did you do what I told you to do? So we're not to set up these conditions that we're, we're submissive if, if he follows these. No, he, he says here, even if he does not obey the word, you know what that means? Even if he's not saved. This is why, single sisters, you better be slow, careful, and prayerful about who you choose to marry. Because you don't get to trump divine order. God says, even if he doesn't believe in me, I've still set up an order for the house that I want you to obey. So that even if he does not obey the word, they may be one Without you nagging, I mean without a word. <laughs> this is what he said. Your unbelieving husband can be one without you saying anything just by the conduct of his wife when he sees your respectful and pure conduct. Submission is not to beat you down. If you feel chafed under that, it just means you don't know how much power you have. Your own godly conduct can change the atmosphere of your house. And this is not some seductive thing. That's what he says in the next two verses. Verse three, don't let your adornment be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, and the clothing that you wear. He's speaking here against sensuality, materialism, and worldliness in a woman's physical appearance. He's not saying that it's wrong for you to try to look nice. He's trying to say that Christian women are not preoccupied with external beauty. Proverbs 31 verse 30 
says that beauty is fading and charm is deceitful, but a woman that fears the Lord should be praised. True beauty is not external. It is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. It is you adorning yourself with the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. Eternal beauty is not real beauty. It's godliness in the heart. And Paul, Peter says, if you got that kind of internal beauty, that lasts forever and you don't need a facelift for that. And just by your attitude and conduct, you can still practice submission and God can change things in your home. It is voluntary, but but you also know that it is intimate. Back at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, where Paul says, wives, submit to who? Your own husbands. Listen, God... Listen, sister, God is not telling you to go just be randomly submitting to men. Just because he's a man doesn't mean you have to submit to him. We think the scripture is holding women back when it constantly emphasizes that the wife should work in the home. And we look down on, on homemakers and at-home mothers. And that's, that's what scripture calls for. Read Titus chapter 2. But God does not do that to try to keep you from breaking the glass ceiling or being successful in life. He is concerned for wives that he does not, God in his protective love, want you in a position where you are submitting to a man that is not your husband. You're not not called to practice submission in general. That's another word for the single women here. Don't be practicing submission with the bubba you dating to prove yourself to him. He should not expect you to conduct yourself as his wife if you ain't his wife. This is not practicing submission to prove. Brother, if you want to know what kind of wife she'll be, marry her. Do not, do, do not try to, do not try to impose duties on her in a dating relationship when you're not willing to make the covenant of, of companionship in marriage. You are to submit to your own husband. And that own husband speaks of possessiveness. Listen to me, church. Nobody would have been surprised that Paul said submit. Christians, Jews, and pagans all understood that was the role of the wife in the ancient world. What was radical about verse 22 is that he says the wife is to submit to her own husband. In that day, husbands often thought their wives were their property. What is radical about this statement is that Paul is saying that the wife belongs to the husband and 
Being the husband belongs to the wife. This is not knocking her down. This is an exalted view of the wife. That he belongs to her just as much as she belongs to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Paul says that the wife is not to deny her husband his conjugal rights, and the husband is not to deny the wife her conjugal rights. That fourth verse says why? Because the wife's body is not her alone, is not her own, but her husband's also. And the husband's body is not his own, but his wife's also. It is affirming what Paul is saying here. You belong to one another. And submission is to be practiced in the specific, intimate, covenant relationship of marriage. You are to submit to your own husband. And then su- submission is Christian. Wives, submit to your own husbands. How? As to the what? Lord. Now, that does not mean that your husband is your Lord. What Paul is saying here is that you submit to him out of devotion to the Lord. What you do for him is not even about him. Verse 21 says it this way. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. You you submit to the other, but it has nothing to do with that other. You do it out of reverence for Christ, out of devotion to Christ as worship to Christ. So verse 22 is a little verse. I know I spent a lot of time there, but it makes a big statement. It states there the wife's relationship to her husband. Would you look at verse 23 where he moves from the wife's relationship to her husband to the wife's relationship to Jesus Christ? Verse 22 calls her to submit. Verse 23 says, why? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now we see the second bad word of the text. Verse 22 is the first bad word, submit. We don't like that. And the second bad word is this word, head. We don't like this notion of male headship. Head is a metaphor using the picture of the body, and it denotes leadership, prominence, and authority. And it's the one who is in the place of leadership, the one who has been placed in charge. We speak of this in our common vernacular, the president and CEO of a company. We say they're the head of the corporation. They don't have to be better than you or smarter than you or more able or experienced than you, but they are, they are the one in the place of authority. Or even if you want to break that down even further, they don't have to be the head of the corporation. They could be the head of the department. Yes? And have a lot of people to answer to above them, but they are responsible. For that department, they are placed in the place of authority. That's the picture of this term head here when it says that the husband is the head of the wife. There are people, again, not talking about the world, but people in the church who don't like this and try to redefine this word head to mean source, saying that it means origin, not authority. That's really straining the metaphor, and the term is never used that way in the New Testament. Everywhere it's used in the New Testament metaphorically like this, it speaks of one in the place of authority. 
It is used that way in chapter 1, verse 22, and in chapter 4, verse 15 of Christ. Christ is the head of every principality and power, and he's the head of the church. This is about authority. God, in his divine ordering of the home, has placed the husband in the position of loving leadership and has called upon the wife to practice willful submission to his loving leadership. And let me just say, I refuse to apologize for that. The world keeps coming up with alternative lifestyles. And getting them accepted and legalized and affirmed. But do you think our culture is getting better with all of this that's going on? Our culture is getting worse as we are drifting away from God's standards. I refuse to apologize for God's way. I'm standing on his word. Um, Let me tell you why I'm saying, because, because... the government's been right, wrong before. Wall Street's been wrong before. The Supreme Court's been wrong before. Uh, the White House's been wrong before. I ain't found where God's word been wrong yet, so I'm just sticking with his word. And you shouldn't apologize for the biblical model of the home where, listen, the husband is the head of the home and the wife is the heart of the home. Listen to me, church. Anything without a head is dead. And anything with more than one head is a monster. God, in his divine wisdom and sovereign grace, has so ordered the home that the husband is the head of the home and his wife willingly submits to his leadership. This is a whole nother sermon. Let me just throw this in while I'm here. This is an irrefutable point I'm about to make. Every biblical argument for male headship in the home is simultaneously a biblical argument for male headship in the church. We'll argue about that another day. Here he says that the husband is the head of the wife, but here's the key term to understanding what he means. As Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So he says, if you want to understand how the home ought to operate, listen to what he says. Don't look to the culture, look to Christ. Christ is head of the church. This is why God has set up the order of the home the way he has. Look at verse 32 at the end of the chapter. After saying all that he's going to say to both the husbands and the wives, he keeps bringing up Christ in the church. But then in verse 32, he says this. He says, I know what I'm saying is mysterious and the mystery is profound. He says, but the stuff I'm saying about husbands and wives, he said, let me tell you a clue here. I'm actually talking about Christ and the what? Church. This is why God has ordered the home the way he has from creation. It is because God expects the Christian home to be a miniature picture of the cosmic relationship between Christ and the church. He's saying that folk 
in your neighborhood that know Jesus, that don't know Jesus, shouldn't have to come downtown to Shiloh to, to know who Christ is and the mystery of the gospel and the beauty of the church. They ought to see it fleshed out in the way you live at the house. Christ is the head of the church, the sole head of the church, the sovereign head of the church. And in this regard, he is saying that God is so ordered the home to be a miniature picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. But to make sure it is clear that the husband is not the Lord of the wife, listen to what he adds. At the end of verse 23, he says, and he himself is Savior. Yeah, so he's saying to us husbands, I've given you leadership, but don't, don't get out of line. You better stay in your place. I've made you head, but you ain't Savior. What a beautiful picture of Christ. He's Savior. You know what that means? It means we are lost. Lost means we are separated from God, and it means we are unable to restore ourselves back to God. Here is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could not reach up to God, but God reached down to us in the righteous person, redemptive work, and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no man can boast. Thank God that in Christ, we have a Savior who is mighty to save. But listen to what he says. You cannot, you cannot separate his role as Savior from his role as head. You know what that means? It means you can't get saved one day and then decide whether or not you're going to make him Lord. I know this election year, but you don't get to vote on some stuff. You don't get to vote on whether or not he's Lord. He's Lord if you like it or not. The, the one who saves is Lord. The Savior is the head of the church, he says. And this is saying that really you can't understand the mystery of marriage if you disconnect yourself from Christ and his church. To be committed to the head is to be connected to the body. Christ doesn't have out-of-body experiences. You cannot be in fellowship with the head if you are disconnected from the body. And he says that Christ wants your marriage to reflect his relationship with Christ and the church. And so here in verse 23, he says the wife should submit in light of her relationship to Jesus Christ and then Thirdly, and finally, verse 24, he says here a word about the wife's relationship to the church. We see now the extent of her call to submit. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 23 pictures this metaphor from the perspective of Christ, now from the perspective of the church. And he says, in regards to the church... Husband, verse 23, is the head, but carrying it forward, he says, the church submits to Christ. How? The church submits to Christ exclusively and voluntarily, as we mentioned, and, listen, 
completely. And he says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In the same way, exclusively, voluntarily, and completely. He explicitly says it in these two words, note them, in everything. The wife is called by God to submit to her husband in everything. This, first of all, is a word to, again, single women. As you are considering a mate, you need to consider more than how he looks or what he wears or what he has or what he drives or where he lives or where he works. Make sure he works. Read Genesis chapter 2. God gave Adam a job before he gave him a woman. Beyond how he looks, how, how fine he is, how much money he got. The, the biggest issue is this. Is this the kind of man I can submit to for the rest of my life? In premarital counseling, I ask each person about their relationship to Jesus Christ. I want to know their salvation testimony. But then I ask the other person what they think about what that other person said. Oh, that's their relationship with the Lord is private. That's their own business. If y'all getting married, it better be your business. <laughs> well, he, I mean, he goes to church. He goes to church. Every time I want to go to church, he never, he never, he never complains. He always goes with me when I want to go to church. But if he wants something for you, he, he'll go a whole lot of places he don't want to go. Come on, go with me, y'all. <laughs> He'll go a lot of places he don't want to go. No, the, 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 you, you need, as you're getting closer, you need to also be far enough away so that you can see objectively. Is this the kind of man I can submit to for the rest of my life? Three big questions. I'll put them this way. Does he believe in Jesus? That is, what are his convictions? Do you know what that man in his heart believes about the Bible? Does he belong to Jesus? What are his commitments? Does he behave like Jesus? What is his character? This is a word to Christian single women, but this is also a word to husbands. This, this call that the husband is to submit the wife is to submit to her husband and everything. Doesn't mean you get to sit back in your easy chair like the king of the universe ordering everyone around. While she practices willing submission, you are to practice loving leadership. And it is no indictment on your manhood when you are a mature enough man 
to allow your wife to lead in the areas where she is better leader than you are. Don't prove something to walk around and say, I'm in charge of everything. I'm the man. No, don't, that's, that's, not, that's not manhood, that's immaturity. If your wife is better at managing the money, let your wife manage the money. You know, you, you the man and you in charge and y'all gonna be sleeping outside. It's not an indictment on your manhood. A, a leader knows when to lead and when to defer. And that's not leadership for you to pretend that you know where you're going when you don't. A wise husband will consult his wife, will defer to his wife, will pray and plan with his wife. This is also more specifically a word to wives. Hear me, and I'm almost done. It is not God's will for you to submit to your husband if that means abuse. It's not God's will. I'll get to that next week, God willing, when the text addresses the husband. But let me just say, you ain't a man if you got to pull, put your hands on a woman to prove your manhood. What if she calling me out? What if she, you leave? You walk away. You don't put your hands on a woman to harm her. You don't prove your manhood that way. First Peter 3, 7 says she's the weaker vessel. That doesn't mean she's inferior. Weaker means she's more precious. You got to handle her delicately. This ain't Tupperware. This fine china, brother. And it is not God's will for you to stay in a place for God's sake. For your sake, for your children's sake. You get out of a place where you are physically in danger. And get yourself to a safe place. It is not God's will for you to suffer physical abuse. And it is not God's will for you to submit to your husband if he is leading you into sin. In Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, the authorities told Peter and John not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And I love what they say. They say, now look, whether it's better to listen to man or to listen to God, y'all can debate that. But as for us, we can't help but talk about what we've seen and heard. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 29, Peter says it more directly. We must obey God rather than man. You are not under obligation to follow the leadership of your husband if he is leading you to do what God says you must not do. 
But having said that, in everything, it is God's will for you to practice an attitude of submissiveness, for you to, as best you can, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to follow your husband's leadership. And sometimes for us men, it is hard to lead, not because we don't desire to be good husbands. Some of us don't, didn't have a model of what that ought to look like. You shouldn't denigrate your husband on those grounds. You ought to encourage his leadership. Pray for him to be a godly man and leader and husband and father. And do that by, by lining up where God has assigned you. I know the things that I've said are not easy. Many times I've been in counseling session over more than 25 years of pastoral ministry addressing interpersonal conflict in relationships in general and marriage in particular, where it is hard for, for you to do what you are supposed to do because your mate is not doing what they are supposed to do. And um, over the years, there are times when I've heard this, and instead of quoting a scripture, I draw a picture. It's a picture of a cliff. And there you are at the top, in the will of God, doing what you're supposed to do, being obedient to the word, honoring Christ, and somehow your mate has gone off the cliff. And there's broken trust, broken intimacy, broken fellowship because he's, he's gone off the cliff. The temptation is to walk away. But the biblical call of God is for you to take a rope and throw that rope down to help restore the breach. But you know the problem with that is, don't you? While trying to pull them up, I said, the problem is they're trying to pull you down, and that's when in counseling they say, "Uh uh-huh, that's what I'm going through right there. And so I draw one more rope coming down from God in heaven. And my final point is, it's easier to reach out in love when you're held up in love. You can't base your worth, your esteem, your identity, your confidence, your hope in what people do because people will always let you down. But you are free to love even when a relationship is difficult because I'm free to love you without depending on how you respond. 
even if you try to pull me down, I've got somebody that's holding me up. Be not dismayed. Whatever be tied, God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide, God will take care of you. My verse, whatever may be your test, God will take care of you. Lean, weary one, upon his breast, for God will take care of you. I'm finished there. God be praised for his Thanks for listening to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. If you'd like more resources from Pastor Charles or to support this ministry, you can reach us online at cutstraight.org. That's cutstraight.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day.